Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain, aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 23. Oh, good prioritizing of topics. Anybody who wants that to be a romantic conversation should probably get that in with me during the first week or two, before I get especially nostalgic or sad about something I didn't realize I'd miss. Yeah, it's about as fantastic as you'd expect from a billion people with high intelligence and enough money to spend on making stuff be diverse and pretty. Enormous buildings that go up into the sky for 200 layers of living space? We've got those. Endless forests with houses you'd never notice, where all the roads are far enough underground that you can't even hear a murmur from the high-velocity automatic carriages moving people around at a mile a minute to their workplace or their friends' houses. Got that. Wind pits a hundred meters on a side so people can fly around using small wings? Got them. Giant super shop that's fifty of these villas in radius, which ended up as the de facto selling point for everything in civilization. That's in common enough demand to need an exhibit, and rare enough to not need many of them. Got that. Entire cities of actors that do nothing but play out unending, elaborate fantasies that people can pay to wander into for a day or a year, complete with sex workers? Got them. It's basically what it seems to me you should expect from people with way more money and knowledge, and zero magic or gods. Given the premise... I don't know what, if any of that, you'd find surprising. Longing sigh. I don't know that I'm surprised by any of those things exactly. They all sound like things people might want if they were very rich. I guess I'm confused about, if everyone's very rich, who does all the unpleasant work of digging the tunnels and hauling the garbage and being the sex workers? Machines. One person can dig a tunnel faster if they have a shovel. Now imagine, it's like that, but there's a crew of a hundred people and eighty tunneling machines who show up and dig all the tunnels for the city you're going to build over the course of a week. Garbage gets tossed down a self-cleaning chute where it lands in containers that get carried away by vehicles that travel around automatically without any humans operating them. Sex workers aren't scalable that way because, like, civilization has made a decision not to scale orgasm production but I don't know why you'd consider that an unpleasant job. Anyone who sells sex is going to sell it at a price that makes them glad to trade it, right? And people who'd need huge prices to be happy aren't going to be the most competitive sex workers. Wait, this is going to be awful Galarian news, and I should be trying to guess it before you say it, but I find that I don't actually want to. Do you want me to not say it? Cheliax isn't one of the countries where women don't have rights, so you don't actually need to know. So... Somebody picks out the most attractive women, tells them they're sex workers whether they like it or not, and underpays them, because otherwise their country can't fill out those jobs because no woman wants them because of the marriage thing. You know, I can tell that's still too sensible for Galarian, but even having said that, I don't know how to make the answer be crazier. If a girl has had sex while unmarried, in a country where women are supposed to marry as virgins, then no one will marry her but it's illegal for her to have been educated or gotten a normal job so she can be a sex worker. That does not translate quite directly to our word. Or she can starve, and she will almost definitely get diseases from having sex with lots of strangers, and also, eventually, one of them will be bad news and strangle her. 
but I imagined doth Elon having enough law to solve the latter problem and enough medicine to solve the former, and it's still considered a lousy job with those aside, because propensity for it is barely getting selected for at all. More equilibria that seem weirdly more awful than anything Keltham knows about, to explain why. Why would you get diseases particularly from having sex with people you didn't know? Is this a magic thing? No. It's just, well, you get diseases from any kind of close contact with other people, right? And there are a bunch of diseases that you specifically get from sex, and people who haven't had sex won't have those diseases to pass along, and people who have sex with hundreds and hundreds of people will inevitably get the diseases eventually. And here that's much more serious than the kind of contagious illnesses that we still have in Datilan, because we eliminated anything we didn't know how to easily treat probably long enough ago that it happened before the screen. Though, I'm a bit confused about the concept of a disease that's specifically transmitted by sex. You wouldn't think a disease would find its optimal strategy in only, like, infecting genitals or sexual fluids and making sure it never got transmitted by sneezing. I wonder if there's something I'm missing about how the equilibrium point is different here. Is it anything you still have to worry about in the face of fourth-circle cleric spells? No, Remove disease is third and will totally handle it, but normal people can't afford that. I don't know enough about why diseases work different ways to guess the answer to your question, but doctors do track, like, if you're doctoring someone with smallpox and haven't had it yourself, you'll catch it. If you're doctoring someone with syphilis and haven't had it yourself, you'll be completely fine, but their wife and mistress will come down with it eventually. I'd guess that, a long, long time ago, in Doth Ilan, we figured out how to identify everyone with a disease like that, all at once, in one giant sweep through the population, and we isolated all of them until they got better or died, plus a while longer to be sure, and then the disease didn't exist anymore. The concept that you can have a contagious disease forever, without it either getting better enough not to be contagious, or getting worse until it kills you, has not particularly occurred to Keltham. Why would the replication rate in the face of immune counterattack be exactly one? rather than exploding or vanishing. Nod. I think Cheliax could do that, but it'd just get reintroduced from other countries that aren't coordinated enough. Yeah, we wouldn't even have tried until we thought we could pull it off across the whole planet at once, so it can't have been any earlier than that, in our history. I wish I knew whether Dathelan went through a phase like this, or if it's something that happens here entirely because of the gods, or a leak in your heritage of intelligence, or I don't know what. If Doth Elon used to look basically like this, minus the gods and magic, it sure would be nice to know exactly how we climbed out of it. For the first time it occurs to Keltham to wonder if Doth Elon used to have gods, and that's what the great screen is meant to protect. Because if you know the info for gods, you might pray to them. It would take a huge effort to keep not just the phenomenon, but the physics behind it out of all the textbooks, but that's the magnitude of effort Doth Elon put into the great screen. And if that's not what's going on, then there remains the unexplained question of why Keltham does not know any standard speculations about hypothetical superagents. That lots and lots of people could have hypothesized. Hypotheses which pose a lot of interesting then-whats once you start looking in that direction. Anyway, it's interesting to know you can have plenty of sex workers if they're also allowed to do other stuff. I'm not sure there's literally anybody on my planet who's not allowed to do other stuff 
Maybe some keepers, if they're holding info hazard so bad that they all have to stay in the same isolated village somewhere. And the people who know the true history in their own causally isolated bunker. But Keltham is now suddenly very unsure he should talk any more about the screening of history, where gods might hear him. If Doth Elon's keepers defeated the gods and eradicated their memory sometime in the forgotten, this may not be a good thing to talk about in modern Galerion. Where does the equilibrium balance in Cheliacs? Keltham adds on. You didn't think that people who enjoy sex lots would be the natural sellers for sex. So what prevents that here? Well, there's still the diseases, and there's still the risk of a dangerous guy, so it's still a job you probably only do if you don't have better options. Though in Cheliacs, that wouldn't be because they're illegal, so it'd probably be because you're really bad at working in some way or another. And if you are particularly attractive and desirable, you probably try to angle that into being a powerful person's mistress rather than working at a brothel, even a high-end one. And the gaps are filled by slavery, which she's not going to say. Oh, in Dothalon, it's that sufficiently attractive people, who are sufficiently good at sex, have formed, um, a temporal process with two sides, where each side is composed of people, who each have their own incentives, such that each side is in equilibrium with respect to the incentives given to them by the other side. And on the other side, from the very desirable people are people who are sufficiently cool and have done sufficiently awesome things. You can't buy some very hot people with money. You've got to have done something that they think is worthy. And the people who are obviously worthy, if they're willing to acknowledge you publicly as a fuck buddy, they're validating to the world that you are that hot and that good at sex, and then you're somebody who gets to decide whether some lesser incredibly rich person is cool enough to meet your standards. Carissa tries to follow that, and when that fails, tries to nail down her confusion, and when that fails, says reluctantly, maybe that's the same thing as taking a mistress, but I suspect instead it's another vast, confusing cultural divide. Okay, suppose I asked you who was the hottest woman on the planet. The first obvious answer would be whoever gets paid the highest prices for sex. But suppose there's somebody even hotter than her, who doesn't accept direct payment for sex at all. How could you tell she was even hotter? How could she prove that to the world? Well, let's say she thinks the big important thing is... Research on rats. And suppose somebody incredibly rich goes and builds an entire small city devoted to rat research, and then she screws him. Depending on how much money gets spent, especially if she's influencing multiple rich people to fund rat research, you could make the case that she's getting implicitly paid more than the most expensive direct sex worker on the planet even if she's only a small fraction of the reason why anyone funded the rat research city. This is missing the point, but in Golarion, you'd check with a spell who had the most splendor. Uh, I'm not sure that's how I think about sexual desirability working. I don't think how hot someone is relates very directly to how much I expect to gain from having sex with them and therefore how motivated I am to do it. And I'm also not sure that's the main place where the confusion is. Do people here not have, I don't know, the kind of pride in their own desirability and sexual skill where they want to prove that they're way better at it than most other people? Because you can't just go around saying that. You've got to prove it somehow. Carissa is pretty sure that the more powerful you are, the less you need skill at sex. 
She's suddenly worried that she shouldn't say that either, though. Yes, but that correlates with not being very powerful or in demand, and therefore with needing to establish that you're fun to have sex with if you want to get anyone to have sex with you at all, she says tentatively after a bit of thought. Keltham is not sure what the communications obstacle could be here, exactly. I mean, it's a two-sided equilibrium containing the hottest people and the worthiest people who mutually judge each other as that, anchored by how hotness and worthiness are also somewhat visible to people outside their in-groups. I have a sense like I'm also missing the point. If you're hot enough that powerful people are competing to sleep with you, you don't need to establish how hot you are anymore. The outside world has now seen it established. I'm going to talk about some place other than Cheliacs first, because I keep getting distracted by trying to apply this conversation to our date, and by worrying about saying something that you'll be incredibly concerned and offended by. So, Osirian. Osirian has a god-king, a pharaoh, they've had them since ancient times. The pharaoh of Osirian has hundreds of concubines. If he sees a hot girl in the street, I think he can just order her to become one of them. It's not particularly validating to be chosen by the pharaoh of Osirion, because it just means that you're either in the top couple hundred or that he was tired of the top couple hundred and wanted something new. I am absolutely not in the top percentile of hotness for women, but if I went to Osirion, I'd be a little worried about getting noticed, because I'm exotic, which is sometimes appealing in its own right. Does all of that make sense? Are we starting to make different predictions at some place after that? I mean, you've convinced me that no woman would want to go to Osirian, and if she did, she wouldn't expect to gain positive sexual reputation from being selected by the pharaoh, because the pharaoh isn't discriminating enough. But I'm now distracted by the question of why there is such a thing as a pharaoh of Osirian in the first place. As a question about history, the answer is that his grandfather staged a nearly bloodless coup against the satrap of the Kelish Empire, with the churches of Abadar and Serenre both backing him, right after Aradin fell when the empire was very distracted and won Osirion independence and kicked out all the Kelish nobles and ended serfdom and is wildly popular. I am not sure that's the question you were asking, though. Suppose everybody in a Dathalani city woke up one day with the knowledge mysteriously inserted into their heads that their city had a pharaoh who was entitled to order random women off the street into his cuddling chambers, whether they liked that or not. Suppose that they had the false sense that things had always been like this for decades. It wouldn't even take until whenever the pharaoh first ordered a woman for her to go, Wait, why am I obeying this order when I'd rather not obey it? Somebody would be thinking about city politics first thing when they woke up in the morning and they'd go, Wait, why we do we have a pharaoh in the first place? And within an hour, not only would they not have a pharaoh, they'd have deduced the existence of the memory modification, because their previous history would have made no sense, and then the problem would escalate to exception handling, and half the keepers on the planet would arrive to figure out what kind of alien invasion was going on. Is the source of my confusion? at all clear here? You think everyone in Dathilan would just decide not to follow orders, even though this would get them executed if anyone else in the system continued following orders, on the confident assumption that no person with a correctly configured mind would possibly decide to follow orders under those circumstances? 
Oh, so we're imagining that people also wake up with the memory that everybody's supposed to kill anyone who talks about removing the pharaoh, and the memory that they're supposed to kill anyone who doesn't kill anyone who talks about removing the pharaoh, and so on through recursion, and they wake up with the memory of everybody else having behaved like that previously. Yeah, that's one of the famous theoretical bad equilibria that we get training in how to... Shit! Confusion resolved now? Just Osirian? Or entire planet outside Cheliacs? No. It's at least also Nadal. Everywhere has people in charge who do things you wouldn't like and stay in charge because it's illegal to overthrow them and the laws are enforced. Exactly how bad the things they do are varies. The pharaoh of Osirion is actually not considered bad at all, and exactly how the laws against overthrowing the government are enforced varies, but probably even in Cheliacs, the government has done something Doth Elon thinks would merit overthrowing it. But for that to be true in Cheliacs, that makes no sense. In terms of Dath Elani common wisdom about how evil aliens would enforce that equilibrium, they'd require non-dissidents to kill dissidents immediately before the timing info now can spread at the speed of local speech. Maybe they're too dumb here to realize that. If you were supposed to have killed me a few seconds ago, Keltham says in a casual tone, not any kind of obvious whisper, and are putting your own life in danger not to do that. This would be a great time to casually nod your head, and then I'll censor a lot of my curriculum from here on out. Carissa is completely insanely tempted to casually nod her head, even though that's not even at all. Lots of countries do still have governments and don't enforce heresy laws, and it's clearly one of those they're pretending at being. I think you are imagining that this equilibrium is extremely fragile and that admitting we're in it is also disallowed, but actually it's extremely sticky. Overthrowing governments is really, really hard, and usually the thing that results when you overthrow a government is much worse. The consequences of overthrowing the Chelish government would be bad ones. So you don't have to pretend the government is perfect, you just have to have a critical mass of people who don't believe that overthrowing it would produce something better, especially not since the Chelish government is possible to improve in normal ways by, like, suggesting improvements? I see, Keltham says, because if you toss out the current equilibrium, it could disrupt a lot of stuff, especially in a place like Golarian, where people who lose a year's income just starve, no safety margin for anything. And if the current equilibrium is also doing some good things. But it should be really, really obvious that there's an alternative to Osirion, which looks like Osirion without the pharaoh raping people, and that you could just... Well, the people here don't have any training in noticing better equilibria and figuring out how to move to them. No. That's just objectively obvious. Keltham manages not to yell this out loud and having now finished internally yelling insults at reality, continues looking externally thoughtful, grateful for his recent practice with Eagle's Splendor. He is not going to say anything along those lines, however obvious, until he has picked up from books whether Cheliax has a pharaoh, or, rather, what kind of pharaoh it has. He is specifically not going to mention that, given a Dathelani training regimen, ten-year-olds are too smart to get stuck in traps like this, and would wait until the next solar eclipse or earthquake, at which point ten percent of them would yell now, followed moments later by the other ninety percent, as is the classic strategy that children spontaneously and independently invent as soon as prompted by this scenario, so long as they have been previously taught about shelling points. 
Has he at any point mentioned out loud Doth Elan's annual Oops, it's time to overthrow the government festival? He doesn't think so. Uh, because... Okay, so there are lots of people who benefit from the current system, right? The pharaoh has personal bodyguards who he personally raised from the dead after they died in his service. The pharaoh has people who he elevated to high-ranking positions. All of those people would be worse off if the government were overthrown, so for practical reasons, they are going to oppose it. So in order to overthrow the government, you have to kill all those people, and also any people who are seeking out positions of importance in the government as a reward for their loyalty and putting down the rebellion, and also any people who have sworn oaths of loyalty to the current regime. I see. In Dathilan, we'd think that it's hard to get over half of the military power on your side by bribing it, in a pre-metallic equilibrium where almost all fighters have about the same military power. And that once you start gaining more knowledge and get more powerful tech, it's your important duty to also use that knowledge to propagate certain kinds of stable equilibria to future generations and not others. But with wizards and clerics and whatever else you have here, if they're extraordinary economics, you don't have the word. If they let individuals do big things without large support networks, you could get half-plus of the military power by appealing to fewer people. Even while your society's knowledge was much too primitive to produce the kind of advanced weapons that would make these issues initially appear in non-magical societies that have started figuring things out. That does make it seem less like the whole thing is just an intelligence 10 phenomenon. Yeah, the pharaoh and a hundred high-level personal bodyguards could probably kill practically the entire rest of the country put together. Commoners are pretty useless against high-level wizards and clerics. Certainly more than 50% of a country's military power is less than a thousand people. Well, I think I'm starting to understand some of the ways that Galarian diverged from a human baseline because of the presence of magic. Or I have the illusion of starting to understand at least one of those divergences. It is not, by our standards, pretty, but it sure beats having no idea why nothing here is making any sense. If you introduce technology into a punished non-punisher society with magic, the situation is no longer stable. It has a possibility of transitioning to the kind of pharaoh-free civilization that Keltham is familiar with. If very large supply networks, and only those, can build weapons powerful enough to kill high-level wizards and clerics. But, yeah, Keltham is going to have to think about how to do that with a minimum of fuss, and maybe not say a whole lot while he's thinking. Carissa can, in fact, follow the way Keltham might be reasoning, and she's pretty sure that she screwed up, even though claiming that every single country except Cheliax was like this would have been ridiculous, and even though she's actually pretty sure that Keltham isn't going to change the calculus of whether it's a good idea to overthrow the government. Anyway, sometimes it does go wrong and someone's power base isn't secure enough. Like in Tian Sha, the Lunghua Empire, which had endured for centuries, collapsed after Aridin's death because there was a massive associated natural disaster and a famine, and the empire collapsed, and everything is much worse now. I've met Tian adventurers, and they tell stories about ghost cities where everyone just left or died because trade routes were disrupted and food stopped coming, an entire country that made a pact with a kraken to be its slaves— other areas where the civil war still hasn't ended, even though there are very few people left to kill each other. I am sure that the emperor of Imperial Lunghua did some things you'd abhor, but 
it'd be monstrous to overthrow him, to throw cities and civilizations and 20 million lives into the chasm of chaos, just to stop a couple dozen people from getting raped. She's doing such a bad job at being more evil, she's going to have to set some time aside tomorrow to work on that. I try not to be the stupid kind of chaotic. Even chaos is made almost entirely of law, remember, if you're doing it correctly. In fact, I'm beginning to think that the top 0.1% most chaotic Doth Elani on my planet, placed on a scale with one unit of distance between what you consider lawful and chaotic, would be located 144 units further to the lawful side of what you call lawful. That seems probably right. I just... It sounds like you're thinking about governments as things that mostly maintain their power by making it too hard for people to correctly overthrow them, when my impression is that actually most people correctly don't want to overthrow them, and I can name six countries where I think that's not true, so I don't think I'm just incapable of recognizing it when I see it, and it's not how I see Cheliax. Or Osirion, for that matter, though I do think stealing all their women would be incredibly satisfying, and we should do it. Stable governments make the expected benefit of overthrowing them look smaller than the expected friction costs of coordinating and changing the regime, yes. Friction costs are not fixed independently of tech level. Where do gods fit into this? There's a lawful neutral god that sponsors Osirian, the same god that took over the planetary banking system. I imagine that god doesn't care whether people benefit themselves or benefit others. It's just completely indifferent to the effect of laws on citizen welfare. All it cares about is that there be laws. Confirm, or more likely deny, my guess. She still hasn't been told whether to tell him he's Abadar's. Abadar's not one of the more human gods, but I think doesn't care whether people benefit themselves or benefit others sounds right. And, uh not exactly indifferent to whether laws affect human welfare and more, deeply concerned with laws along a specific dimension which is not human welfare but definitely isn't just laws exist, I bet it matters that they're possible to consistently enforce and that they're consistently obeyed. And I bet there are other things that matter which I just don't happen to know. The info he needs is to what extent gods, both including and excluding Asmodeus, are liable to get pissed if Keltham tries to make their afterlife feeder be less of a shithole. Keltham is aware he can't immediately ask about this, though it also occurs to him that Carissa may be similarly speculating about Keltham's intentions and not saying what she speculates he's thinking. Gosh, Keltham hopes they weren't supposed to be coordinating some kind of immensely meaningful implied side conversation while they were talking about this, because if so... Keltham has absolutely no idea what they both sides spoke, and that would be embarrassing. Well, not really his fault, because of the enormous cultural gap, and hypothetical Carissa should have known better, but still. Want to go back to talking sex work in Dathilan? Keltham offers. Sure. Do women pay for it? They don't in Golarion. It's not hard to find someone who'll have sex with you for free. Some women do? I should also mention that there's a difference between, like, slipping some normal man or woman a private note saying that you realize you failed at flirting with them, but you still want them enough that you'd pay 30 unskilled labor hours to fuck them anyways, versus paying much higher prices to extremely attractive people who are extremely good at sex. 
The second thing is more of a case of something you do when you're older, richer, can afford it on a regular basis if you don't want to go back to less expert sex and aren't concerned about it messing up your regular relationships. I've resorted to bribery six times and been bribed twice, but the total money flow ratio is more like 20 to 1, not 3 to 1. That with normal non-professionals is not a thing in Cheliacs, and I suppose it could be. I don't actually know why it isn't. I guess since no one does it, offering would be extremely weird and therefore a negative signal about the traits of the person who offered. It had read as a bizarre threat, is what it had read as. I'd be cautious about doing that here, not that I expect you'll need to. Thanks for the warning. Anything else I shouldn't offer people money to do? Huh, good question. I'm not immediately thinking of anything else. Normally, I would say you shouldn't offer people money to overthrow the government. That actually is illegal. But what with it being you, I think it's probably better if your controlling constraint isn't believing yourself to have necessarily incomplete information about the merits of overthrowing governments. Oh, and now we're back on serious topics. Sorry, what sorts of things do you do in a whole city of sex workers? Do you pretend to be the pharaoh of Osirian? You mean, and then the women overthrow him and take sexual revenge on him? Or played straight rather than subverted? I mean, I'm sure somebody has played perverted alien dictator of civilization and probably a hundred thousand variations on it. I don't know myself, very much of what goes on in there. There's a standard wisdom of play the simple sex games first, wait to get bored naturally before you start making sex more complicated, don't rush ahead to the weirdest sex civilization has developed. It's considered... The kind of info hazard that isn't going to drive you insane, but can make you miss out on a lot of fun by making you bored before you would have been bored, like telling somebody how a book ends when they just started reading it. We have whole civilizational structures around avoiding that class of lesser info hazards, spoilers they're called, with, for example, simple codes you only memorize after you pass a competence check for a threshold level of sexual experience, so newspapers can print sentences that only sufficiently perverted people would be able to read without making a deliberate effort. Huh. I guess that's fair enough. Does this mean that you should not be doing kinkiness challenges because Galarian doesn't have such a norm and adventurers tend to tell stories about what they've gotten up to? Uh, uh, new planet. I'll get used to what's normal here. Maybe don't spring it on me all at once and leave some for next time. Actually, I'm not quite sure what kind of perversion kinky is. I can tell it's like sexual diversity, but the word doesn't directly translate. Surprising me is fine, to be clear. I mean, it's sort of a general word for everything that's not, you know, one man and one woman with no implements and no magic. That covers an awful lot of space by itself, I would have said, but maybe I'm naive about how much more people get up to in their forties once they can afford nicer things and more participants. I mean, I think people who tend to like tying people up also tend to like whipping them, also tend to like dripping candle wax on them, also tend to like having two of them. You can get to do things with each other and also tend to like using control spells on them. So it forms a sort of... Natural category? Shrug. Maybe the category is just general the thing you are calling perversion. Okay, haven't done any of that, and if it ever got mentioned in the newspapers, it was encrypted. Wait, what? It'd have to go awfully wrong to get mentioned in the newspapers. Under other circumstances, I'd say surprise me, but what exactly is whipping? What's a candle? 
I can't quite make things out through this translation spell, but whipping sounds like pain and candles sound like fire. I feel obliged to check that these activities won't require that we pay to resurrect each other afterwards. Whipping is painful, but, like, in a sexy way, not in a deadly way. Candles are a tiny bit of fire. People who don't have magic use them for lighting, and their wax melts at a low temperature, so they're also painful, but a sexy amount, not an injurious amount. We're not even talking about things you'd need healing for, though people do, in fact, get into things you'd need healing for. Okay, and the concept is that you and I hire a member of some non-human species that doesn't mind having it done to them. It's going to be so fascinating to settle some bets among your research group. Uh, humans are often into being hurt in the context of sex, because pain is an intense experience and with the right surrounding context can be fun. Okay, I checked in with my inner self and if there's some later stage of my life where I would want to be tied up and hurt in a sexual context, I haven't at all gone down the path that leads there. In fact, myself seems to be sort of weirdly violently against that happening to me, to a degree greater than I'd expect from small amounts of pain. I've paid pain costs in non-sexual contexts, but this was just like a very loud inner nope. I hope that's not too disappointing. Men are more often the other way around, if anything, and it's the other way around we've got a betting pool on. Whether you like inflicting pain on interested parties in a sexual context, I have no idea how... You were not aware that was a thing cashes out for that. I don't see why men or women would want to be hurt in terms of the human mind design and the reproductive pressures producing it that I'm familiar with. Pain is the damage signal. It's the sum of what we avoid so that we won't die and fail to have children. Are you someone who enjoys pain inflicted on you in a sexual context? Point of Theology Sheliax conceives of pain as significantly more than just a damage signal. Not that being sexually into pain is limited to Sheliax or people who share our theology, or is even significantly more common here, I suspect it's innate. I have enjoyed pain in the context of sex, though the atmosphere matters a lot, you'd, ah, uh, have to be good at it. Okay. Let me check in with what my brain thinks of pulling your hair in a sexual context if you enjoyed that in a sexual way. And yep, somebody just won their bets on me, all right. Oh, good. Huh. I'm reasonably sure that Dath Elan never wanted me to notice that about myself. Huh. I guess Dath Elan's really good, but that seems like one of the contexts where good's just obnoxious. Stuff in Dath Elan doesn't happen without a reason. It's not Galarian. Let me think about this. Point one. If the desire to inflict pain in a sexual context is sufficiently a human universal and sufficiently common that somebody on this plane of existence can spot the signs in Keltham before he knows them himself, the Keepers know about this already. The probability of this need not be evaluated. It's a flat fact. Point two. Not only has Keltham not been told about this, Keltham has never been exposed to any sexual education or priming, which would cause him to think, if he did notice this fact about himself, that it was a good idea to pursue that thought further. People don't want to be hurt. That is sort of what hurting is. Having a strong sexual desire to inflict pain, according to everything that Dath Elan has taught Keltham about the world, would mean that any attempt to satisfy this desire would involve an unusually mentally resilient sex worker being paid a lot of money to put up with a sexual experience that she didn't like. If he got addicted, if his whole sexuality turned into that, the rest of his romantic life would suck really hard and probably never be truly satisfying again. 
That would have been the obvious prediction, going on the obvious intuitive reasoning Keltum would have done from everything civilization ever taught him. The thought that the world was full of other people, who were the complements of that desire, who wanted to be sexily hurt, would just straightforwardly have never occurred to Keltham at all, if he'd spotted that desire in himself. That makes the answer obvious, doesn't it? All he needs to do is guess. First, that civilization prefers not to lie. And second, that natural selection in Dath Elan worked the way it obviously intuitively should. By default, organisms don't like pain, and pain is what they don't like. Dath Elan has people who want to inflict pain sexually. It doesn't have the people who want to be sexually hurt. I'm not sure why they exist in Galarian, but whatever that reason was, it didn't operate in Dath Elan. That's why I was never supposed to notice. Huh. You know, that actually sort of follows. One explanation I've seen for enjoying pain being more common in women is that it improves the odds of surviving rape and sexual slavery. And then the thing you talked about in class about who has more children. Carissa is having the somewhat upsetting realization that maybe it would be bad for Dathilani people if they went to hell, if they've just completely eradicated the mechanism by which their brains translate pain into something more complex than just suffering. I could wish these congratulations came under nicer circumstances, but congratulations anyways. You're learning to operate the theory validly. I mean, I already knew about the bad stuff. I just didn't know we were getting anything good out of it. And I think we are. Getting something good out of it, that is, something I'd definitely arrange for heredity optimization to keep having. Wow, I bet in Nadal it's everyone. I hope you're right about everyone in Nadal enjoying it, but even I'm starting to notice that sounds a little optimistic for Galarian. Oh, Nadal is horrible, and I bet everyone there is miserable. But I also bet that they have near-universal sex-related pain enjoyment. Sex-related pain enjoyment doesn't give you context-free enjoyment of all pain. I did not enjoy getting punished for bad grades. And I've had sex with a girl who was into hurting me more than I could handle, and that wasn't fun either. Blue and orange, Keltham thinks, as he notices it explicitly this time. How there's an alien reality here that doesn't make sense, and his brain is trying to force it. But he doesn't know the thread to pull to unravel this whole knot. All he can do is wibble the fringes of it. If you don't have money flows to make up for relationships that would be imbalanced like that, is there some class of things okay to trade, that aren't money, that you were getting out of that relationship instead? Yes. People trade. Favors, protection. In that specific case, a spell I really, really wanted. It's not that people don't have sex for, reasons located outside the sex, they do that all the time. It's just culturally rather unheard of, to name a specific amount of money as a bid, and it's also traditional for it to be a bit ambiguous, how much you are doing, for what reasons. He's going to wait until later, in case it's somehow wrong and wronger if done in public, to ask Carissa how much hair-pulling he can trade, for how much explanation of how they ask the flirting norms here actually work. Yeah. Dathulan has all kinds of dating ambiguity and mingamas like you to Megan from people with high intelligence and a lot more spare time, but the concept of never naming specific amounts of money. It's so not Dathulan, I can't easily convey it. Anything worth anything is worth money. Not just money in general, a specific amount of money. It's the unit of caring in our parlance. Yes, I am not surprised that Dath Elon prefers forthrightness on the value transfer elements of sex and flirting, even if they like ambiguity elsewhere. 
I can see how you'd get used to it even. But I think if you do it here, you'll just confuse people terribly. Is it literally just money, or do I have to be careful not to offer anybody anything such that it would have a well-defined resale value? That is definitely sometimes done. Spells have a resale value. But there are nuances, and I might recommend running it by someone else first. Is such conversation also bad on the meta level? If I asked everyone who'd be the best person to ask about which sexual offers are and aren't offensive, is that question itself even more offensive? Keltham has noticed that Galarian can sometimes be effectively predicted by asking himself how he would design a social protocol as badly as possible. This conversation is fine. That question is fine. I promise we are not entirely made of impossibilities. Well, congratulations to Galarian on passing the bar that he set literally as low as he could imagine on short notice, but it's sure an improvement on undershooting it, so he'll take what he can get. I think I'm pretty much done with my dinner myself. You? I'm done. Up to the rooftops? Or have you rediscovered your sex drive in the course of this conversation? Good question. Keltham turns his attention inward not quite able to stop himself from thinking how much clearer that perception was under Owl's wisdom, how much easier and fuller the seeing of Keltham by Keltham. It sure is more there than it was when I walked in, maybe half from time passing and half from discovering high-payoff sexual options I never imagined possible. Still, I think I want to start off the evening a little slower, and spending at least some time on the rooftop sounds good. Are people in Dath Elan just that candid and self-aware all the time? How do they live? Rooftop it is, assuming we can find it. Do you want to ask security right away or go exploring ourselves? Normally, the second would be a stunningly dangerous thing to do, but security isn't going to let Keltham get exploded by a stray internal defensive measure. Let's explore, though I'm trusting you that misguided exploration is either knowably not fatal or that they'd resurrect us without too much fuss. Oh, okay, she'd been worried that... This sort of thing is dangerous, is something that'd have him all shocked and appalled about what societies outside Dathilan are like, but apparently it's allowed. I expect this place has defenses that might in fact be fatal if triggered, but that they have been very thoroughly disabled. Chelish security's not stupid, and they don't want you to die. And if you did, they'd resurrect you, but I'm not relying too much on that because I'll be in lots of trouble if I get you killed even though it'll take all of ten minutes to fix. Keltham rises from the table. Shall we? Yeah. You know, I figured I would live my whole life without getting to poke around a duke's villa. I am very excited. Your lead, then. If you wish to support the production of this AI-voiced reading of Plane Crash, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated.